Welcome back, friends. Bill Creasy here with Monday's episode of Scripture Uncovered. Hey, I'd like to do something a little different today. Uh, rather than continue on in the New Testament with the Gospels, I'd like to go back into the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures, and have a look at some of the women in the Bible, some of the pivotal players, if you will, of Scripture. And what better place to begin than with the mother of us all, Eve. So I'm going to turn back to Genesis chapter 1, look at the creation story and Eve's role in that story and the ongoing story that follows. So if you turn with me to Genesis chapter 1, beginning at verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the face of the deep and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters, like a bird hovering on the wind. The face of the earth was formless and empty. Tohu wabohu in Hebrew. And darkness on the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God hovering over the waters. What a gorgeous image. And God said, let there be light. Boom! And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And he separated the light from the darkness. And God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning, the first day. God created by speaking everything into existence. He created by his word. You might recall in John chapter 1, John echoes this creation story. When John writes, In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God, and the word became flesh and lived among us in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. The opening of John connects right here to the very first day of creation. And then God said, Let there be an expanse between the waters to separate water from water. So God made the expanse and separated the water under the expanse from the water above it. And it was so. God called the expanse sky. And there was evening and there was morning the second day. So follow as we move through creation, God's arranging his creation. First, by turning on the lights, then by separating up from down. And then God said, let the water under the sky be gathered to one place and let dry ground appear. And so it was. God called the dry ground land and the gathered waters he called seas. And God saw that it was good. God separated the water from the dry land. And then God said, Let the land produce vegetation, seed-bearing plants and trees on the land that bear fruit with seed in it according to their kind. And it was so. The land produced vegetation, plants bearing seed according to their kind, trees bearing fruit with seed according to their kind. And God saw that it was good. 
and there was evening and there was morning, the third day. And so we move through each step of creation. You know, people get caught up in arguing about the creation story. Is it a literal 24 days? Did God create in this way? Well, I think that rather misses the point. Genesis chapter 1, the creation story, indeed, Genesis 1 through 11, what I call the primeval chapters of Genesis, is mythopoeic literature, not mythology, but story that addresses the fundamental issues of the human condition in story form. Why are we here? How did we get here? What do we do once we're here? What's our purpose? What's our relationship with creation and the creator? All of these questions come into play in these primeval chapters of Genesis, in this mythopoeic literature. This is poetry, and this is gorgeous. So each step of creation continues on, moving toward completion and perfection, until God said, let us make man in our image, in our likeness. Day six, God created us, humanity. And notice, we're made in his image, his teshlem, much like in his shadow. We're not God. We're no more God than we are something else but we're made in his image. I'm looking here at my recording studio at my shadow cast on the wall behind me. That's not me, but it's my image, my shadow, if you will. So we share with God something of who he is in that we're made in his image and likeness. And God said, let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So, God created man, humanity, in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Notice, it's not me, male, Bill, in the image of God. It's not you, Betty, in the image of God. Together, we make up, we comprise the image of God. We reflect the image of God. That's a beautiful verse. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. The poetic structure of the verse is chiastic. It ties together us and God, male and female. And God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air over every living creature that moves on the ground. And then God said, I give you every seed bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth and the birds of the air and all the creatures that move on the ground, everything that has the breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. And 
it was so. And God saw that all he had made, and it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. And thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. And by the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work because he was finished, complete. It was perfect. And God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it, he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. So Genesis chapter 1 through chapter 2 at verse 3 is our first creation story. Now, many will say, after this, we have a second creation story. And in one sense, we do. But I think it's more fruitful to view these two stories not as two separate accounts, not as sources coming from different places stitched together here in Scripture, but rather as a unified literary work. The Bible, in its final finished form, as we have it in front of us, is a unified literary work. True, the Bible consists of many different books written at many different times by many different people, passing through the hands of editors and redactors and so on. And we could go to great lengths to look at the sources, the, the, the beginnings of each of these books and how they came together. And that's really digging down deep into the weeds. But again, it's more fruitful, I think, more pleasant to see Scripture as a unified literary masterpiece. And if we view Genesis chapters 1 and 2 in that way, what we have in Genesis chapter 2, beginning at verse 4, is a recapitulation back into day 6. After all, we move from turning on the lights to separating up from down, land from water, planting the land, filling the water, filling the air. It's a very symmetrical, beautiful structure of creation, of mythopoeic literature. But now, if God is working from creation, from emptiness and nothingness to something, He's moving step by step toward completion and perfection. And what is the last act of creation? God created man in his own image. He created him male and female. That's the final act. So humanity is the crown of creation. Now, we the readers, we human beings, male and female, what day are we most interested in? Well, of course, day six, the day we were created. So Genesis chapter 2, beginning at verse 4, recapitulates. We turn around, we drop down into day six, and we watch how God did it. This is wonderful. Look, follow me, everyone. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created. When the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, and no shrub of the field had yet appeared on the earth, and no plant of the field had yet sprung up. For the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth, and there was no man to work the ground. 
But streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. And the Lord God formed the man, get this, from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man, masculine male, became a living being. Now in chapter 1, God spoke everything into existence. Until day 6, when we read, God created man in his own image. How did he do it? Right here. The Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. Of all God's creatures, creatures of the sea, creatures of the land, of the air, of all God's creatures, we are the only ones that carry within us the very breath of God. Form from the dust of the ground. <laughs> and dust that gets stuck on itself is just plain mud. But we have something very special here. We have a relationship with God in which we carry within us his very breath. That's what makes us uniquely valuable. Now, the Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden. And there he put the man he had formed. And the Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden, with a tree of life, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, two trees. Now, a river watering a garden flowed from Eden, and from there it was separated into four headwaters, the Pishon, the Gihon, the Tigris, and the Euphrates. And the Lord took the man and put him in the garden to work it and take care of it. That was our job, to nurture and care for God's creation, to be environmentalists, if you will, and to creatively manage what God had made. And the Lord God commanded the man, you're free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will surely die. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. I don't think God intended to withhold that knowledge from humanity. Of course not. We have, to know, we have to have that knowledge. But this man that he's created, he's brand new. And the knowledge of good and evil can be a dangerous thing. I think God was perfectly willing to expose Adam to the knowledge of good and evil at the right time but not yet. Now the Lord had formed out of the ground all the beasts of the field and the birds of the air. And he brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds of the air, the beasts of the field. I, I think that's just wonderful. God is delighted in this creature that he's made. And notice that God is right there with him in the garden. The man and God, Adam and God, 
and Adam simply means man, they're in an intimate, loving relationship. And God brought all the animals parading before Adam to see what he would call them. I remember my two sons, Adam and Jonathan, taking them to the zoo for the first time in a stroller when they were little boys. Little boys, two years old perhaps. And showing them the animals. And oh, they were thrilled. What's that? That's an elephant. Elephant? Look at his big nose. No, he has big ears too. What's that? Watch, it's a peacock. And I waved my arms and the peacock flared his feathers. It was dazzling. That's what God is doing with Adam. He's parading all the animals before him to see what, to watch his reaction, to see what he would call them. It's a a delightful scene. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's sides, not ribs, sides, and closed up the place with flesh. And then the Lord God made a woman from the side he had taken out of Adam. And he brought her to the man. Now this is really something. Adam is in the garden, working it and taking care of it. The animals have been prated before him. He's delighted with them. The elephants, the peacocks, the giraffes, the lions, the rabbits. And God's watching him. And Adam's perhaps pruning the roses in the garden and thinking to himself, yeah, when I finish here, I'll go inside, have a beer, watch a football game. Life is good. And the Lord's watching him. And the Lord said, no, this is not good. It's not good for the man to be alone. So God took from his side and made a woman. And when the man woke up, he said, and it's the first time we have actual poetry in the Bible. He took one look at her and he said, this is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, she shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. And there's a play on language, Isha and Ish. He makes a pun, a joke, and both Adam and God laugh at this. And of course, Eve is standing with her arms crossed and saying, what's so funny? But she was made from the side of man. Way back in 1708, Matthew Henry wrote a commentary on the entire Bible. And here on this verse, Genesis chapter 2, verse 23, he wrote, She was not made out of his head to top him not out of his feet to be trampled upon by him, but out of his side to be equal with him, under his arm to be protected, and near his heart 
to be beloved. I think that's just lovely. I'm going to cry here. Well, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. Who else besides college freshmen are naked and feel no shame? Babies. Infants. I remember both my sons, when they were two, three, four, five years old, were with little cousins, little female cousins, and they would be naked in the bathtub together. Nope. They had a fine time. They weren't ashamed or embarrassed. It's not until later that that happens. So we have man and woman, Adam and Eve, naked and felt no shame. They looked at one another. They didn't see other. They simply saw themselves. And for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they'll become one flesh. That's the normal, natural progression of human life. To grow up within a loving family, to find your mate, to create your own family, and continue on. What a wonderful story. And if we could just stop here, things would be great. But no, we move to chapter 3. Now the serpent, oh, and by the way, if each act of creation is a movement toward completion and perfection, what's the final act of creation? Man, no. The final act of creation is woman. If man is the crown of creation, woman is the jewel in the crown. How do you like that? <laughs> now, the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, and notice he, he selected her out like, like a, a jackal cutting out an animal from the herd. The serpent, Nachash, was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made, more subtle, more devious. He said to the woman, and notice the tone, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Come on, he couldn't have said that. And the woman said to the serpent, well, we, we may eat from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you'll die. Well, God never said that. He did say to Adam, you must not eat from it, but he didn't say anything about touching it. And notice how subtle and devious the serpent is, the Nahash. We learn back at the end of Revelation that the serpent is Satan, the arch enemy, the accuser. Did God really say? And when she said, and you must not touch it, I can just picture it. The serpent is not a snake slithering on the ground, but a nachash, a shining one. He leans against the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And he said, you won't die. God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like him. You'll be like God. 
knowing good and evil. The woman watched him. He's touching the tree. When the woman saw the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. And then she had a lecherous look on her face and she went looking for Adam. No! She also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it. He was standing right there. Wait a minute. What should Adam have done? Adam could see through this. Adam should have said to the Nahash, the shining one, clearly superior to either he or Eve, he should have said to this shining one, no, you want her, you got to come through me. He should have protected her. And he didn't. He took some and he ate it. And the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked. So as the Geneva Bible <laughs> 15th century Geneva Bible uh, writes, they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves britches. <laughs> they put on a pair of pants, if you will. Oh, gosh. And there it begins. Then the man and the wife and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. They were together, all three of them, all the time in an intimate, loving relationship. But now Adam and Eve did something they wanted, something God told them specifically not to do. They want what they want. And God said, where are you? As if he didn't know. And they answered from hiding. We heard you in the garden and we were afraid because we were naked. He said, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? Well, of course, God knows they did. But this is like talking to a two-year-old who broke the lamp and he's hiding behind the couch with his butt sticking out behind the couch. Where are you? You told me not to touch the lamp and I did. Mm. The Lord God said to the woman, to Eve, what have you done? She said, well, the Nahash, the, the, the serpent deceived me. She blamed somebody else. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all the livestock and all the wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. He becomes symbolically a snake. Now, you probably know some people, and if you were to describe them, you would say, he's a snake. Keep away from him. It's the same thing here. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Her offspring will crush his head. Now, if you're familiar with medieval and Renaissance art in particular, quite often, Paintings of the crucifixion of Jesus have 
a skull at the bottom of the cross on the ground and a serpent. Christ's death on the cross crushed the head of the serpent. So the woman, he said, I will greatly increase your pains in childbearing. With pain, you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. I will greatly increase your pain in childbearing. As if it didn't already hurt. Now, I can't say, I'm not a woman. I've never been there. I've never done that. But I'm a father and I've witnessed the birth of my two sons. And I got to tell you, I'm quite sure that something the size, shape, and weight of a bowling ball leaving your body, it's got to hurt. But what's he saying here? You're going to bring a child into the world. A child, perfect, loving in every way. But you're bringing him into a very dangerous place now. And you'll experience pain because of it. And your desire will be for your husband. And he will use that desire to control you. And to Adam he said, Because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you must not eat. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow you will eat food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken, and dust for dust you are, and to dust you shall return. When God created Adam and Eve, he created them to be immortal, to live forever. But now, we say, in chapter 3, sin entered the world. Well, I'm not so sure we can say that. Sin entered the world. In fact, we don't find sin mentioned until chapter 4 when Cain kills Abel. God says to Cain, sin is crouching at your door. The first time it's mentioned. But here in Genesis 3, okay, let's call it sin. Sin is not an act that we commit, but a condition we are in. A condition of alienation and separation from God that manifests itself in outward sinful action. And that condition of sin has several features. First, it's subtle. No one wakes up in the morning and says, gee, I think I'll sin big today. It just sort of happens. Sin distorts our judgment. Rather than confront it and deal with it, we rationalize around it. Sin cascades down through generations. It doesn't stay with you. It affects you, your family, your grand, your children, your grandchildren, all the way down the line. And sin keeps us alienated from God. That condition of sin. God created Adam and Eve to live eternally, but not in that condition. Living eternally in a condition of sin is the very definition of of hell. So God must limit their lives, limit in time. Well, Adam named his wife Eve because she would become the mother of all living. And the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. And he put them out of the garden. Now, Adam and Eve will live a long time. 
930 years Adam will live. Now, as we move through scripture, if you draw a graph with a horizontal and vertical axis, and on the vertical axis, do one through a thousand years, and on the horizontal, Genesis 1, all the way through Psalm 90. Every time a person's age is mentioned when they die, and you plot it on your graph, you get a downward sloping curve. That's the whole point. With sin comes entropy. Entropy of God's creation, a winding down, a deterioration of God's creation. Well, Adam and Eve lived a long time. We read chapter four. Adam lay with his wife Eve. She became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. So the two of them got together and raised a little Cain. <laughs> and she said, with the help of the Lord, I've brought forth a man. I bet she was thinking, maybe the man who will defeat and crush the serpent. Later, she gave birth to his brother, Abel. Abel kept flocks, Cain worked the soil. And we know the story. Cain, out of envy, jealousy, murders his brother. Well, we find nothing in Scripture as to how Eve reacted to that. But we can only imagine Adam and Eve being put out of the garden, now living a very different life, no longer in intimacy with God, walking in the cool of the afternoon in the garden. Now, they're apart from God. They're separated. Part of the condition of sin, a separation and alienation from God. You wonder about Eve. We know Adam lived 930 years, we're told, in Genesis. I suppose Eve lived about the same. What was her life like after that? We can only imagine. She was the mother of us all. The mother of us all, the one who brought us into the world. We all go back through that line. You wonder today, when we step out into eternity and we, we meet Adam and Eve, we meet these characters. What will they say? What will they say to us? And, and how will you know, how will you pick out of the crowd Adam and Eve? Well, that's easy. They'll be the only two without belly buttons. <laughs> well, there we are. Eve our first woman of the Bible. Okay, I'll be seeing you Wednesday. Blessing to all of you.